The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill Read by Adrian Pretzelis This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill Chapter 2 But the newspapers were premature. Scotland Yard refused to prejudice the case despite the penny aligners. Several arrests were made, so that the later editions were compelled to soften suicide into mystery. The people arrested were a nondescript collection of tramps. Most of them had committed other offences for which the police had not arrested them. One bewildered-looking gentleman gave himself up, as if he were a riddle, but the police would have none of him, and restored him forthwith to his friends and keepers. The number of candidates for each new opening in Newgate is astonishing. The full significance of this tragedy of a noble young life cut short had hardly time to filter into the public mind when a fresh sensation absorbed it. Tom Mortlake had been arrested the same day at Liverpool on suspicion of being concerned in the death of his fellow-lodger. The news fell like a bombshell upon a land in which Tom Mortlake's name was a household word. That the gifted artisan orator, who had never shrunk upon occasion from launching red rhetoric at society, should actually have shed blood, seemed too startling, especially as the blood shed was not blue, but the property of a lovable young middle-class idealist, who had now literally given his life to the cause. But this supplementary sensation did not grow to a head, and every one, save a few labour leaders, was relieved to hear that Tom had been released almost immediately, being merely subpoenaed to appear at the inquest. In an interview which he accorded to the representative of a Liverpool paper the same afternoon, he stated that he put his arrest down entirely to the enmity and rancour entertained towards him by the police throughout the country. He had come to Liverpool to trace the movements of a friend about whom he was very uneasy, and he was making anxious inquiries at the docks to discover at what times steamers left for America when the detective stationed there had, in accordance with instructions from headquarters, arrested him as a suspicious-looking character. "'Though,' said Tom, "'they must very well have known my fears, as I have been sketched and caricatured all over the shop. When I told them who I was, they had the decency to let me go, though they thought they'd scored off me enough, I reckon.' "'Yes, it certainly is a strange coincidence that I might actually have had something to do with the poor fellow's death, which has cut me up as much as anybody. Though if they had known I had just come from the scene of the crime, and actually lived in the house, they would probably have let me alone. Huh? He laughed sarcastically. "'They are a queer lot of muddleheads of the police. Their motto is, first catch your man.' then cook the evidence. If you're on the spot, you're guilty because you're there, and if you're elsewhere, you're guilty because you've gone away. Oh, I know them. If they could have seen their way to clap me in quad, they'd have done it. 
Luckily, I know the name of the cabman who took me to Euston before five this morning. If they capped you in quad, the interviewer reported himself as facetiously observing, the prisoners would be on strike in a week. Yes, but there would be so many blacklegs ready to take their places, Mortleg flashed back, that I'm afraid it would be no go. But do excuse me, I'm so upset about my friend, I'm afraid he has left England, and I have to make inquiries. And now there's the poor Constant gone. Horrible, horrible. And I'm due in London at the inquest. I really must run away. Good-bye. Tell your readers, it's all a police grudge. One last word, Mr. Mortlake, if you please. Is it true you were billed to preside at a great meeting of clerks at St. James's Hall between one and two today to protest against the German invasion? Phew! So I was. But the beggars arrested me just before one when I was going to wire, and then the news of poor Constance End drove it out of my head. What a nuisance! Lord, what troubles do come together! Well, good-bye. Send me a copy of the paper." Tom Mortlake's evidence at the inquest added little beyond this to the public knowledge of his movements on the morning of the mystery. The cabman who drove him to Euston had written indignantly to the papers to say that he picked up his celebrated fare at Bow Railway Station at about half-past four a.m., and the arrest was a deliberate insult to democracy, and he offered to make an affidavit to that effect, leaving it dubious to uh, which effect. But Scotland Yard betrayed no itch for the affidavit in question, and number 2138 subsided again into the obscurity of his rank. Mortlake, whose face was very pale below the black mane brushed from his fine forehead, gave his evidence in low, sympathetic tones. He had known the deceased for over a year coming constantly across him in their common political and social work, and had found him the furnished rooms for him in Glover Street, at his own request, just as being to let when Constant resolved to leave his rooms at Oxford House in Bethnal Green, and to share the actual life of the people. The locality suited the deceased as being near the people's palace. He respected and admired the deceased, whose genuine goodness had won all hearts. The deceased was an untiring worker, never grumbled, was always in fair spirits, regarded his life and wealth as a sacred trust to be used for the benefit of humanity. He had last seen him at a quarter-past nine p.m. on the day preceding his death. He, the witness, had received a letter by the last post which made him uneasy about a friend. He went up to consult deceased about it deceased was evidently suffering from toothache, and was fixing a piece of cotton wool in a hollow tooth, but he did not complain. Deceased seemed rather upset by the news he brought, and they both discussed it rather excitedly. Juryman. Did the news concern him? Mortlake. Only impersonally. He knew my friend, and was keenly sympathetic when one was in trouble. Coroner. Could you show the jury the letter you received? Mortlake. I have uh, mislaid it, and I can't make out where it has got to. If you, sir, think it relevant or essential, I will state what the trouble was. Coroner. Was the toothache very violent? Mortlake. 
"'I cannot tell. I think not, though he told me it had disturbed his rest the night before.' Coroner. "'What time did you leave him?' Mortlake. "'About uh, twenty to ten. Coroner. "'And what did you do then?' Mortlake. "'I went out for an hour or so to make some inquiries. Then I returned and told my landlady I should be leaving by an early train for, for the country.' Coroner. And that was the last you saw of the deceased? Mortlake, with emotion. The last. Coroner. How was he when you left him? Mortlake. Mainly concerned about my trouble. Coroner. Otherwise you saw nothing unusual about him? Mortlake. Nothing. Coroner. "'What time did you leave the house on Tuesday morning?' Mortlake. Uh, "'About five and twenty minutes past four. Coroner. "'Are you sure you shut the street door?' Mortlake. "'Quite sure. Knowing my landlady was rather a timid person, I even slipped the bolt of the big lock, which was usually tied back. It was impossible for anyone to get in, even with a latch-key.' Mrs. Drabdump's evidence, which, of course, preceded his, was more important, and occupied a considerable time, unduly eked out by Drabdumpian padding. Thus she not only deposed that Mr. Constant had the toothache, but that it was going to last about a week, in tragicomic indifference to the radical cure that had been effected. Her account of the last hours of the deceased tallied with Mortlake's, only that she feared Mortlake was quarrelling with him over something in the letter that had come by the nine o'clock post. Deceased had left the house a little after Mortlake, and had returned before him, and had gone straight to his bedroom. She had not actually seen him come in, having been in the kitchen, but she heard his latch-key, followed by his light step, up the stairs. A juryman. "'How did you know?' "'It was not somebody else.' Sensation, of which the juryman tries to look unconscious. "'He called down to me over the banisters, and said in his sweetish voice, "'Be extra sure to wake me at a quarter to seven, Mrs. Drabdump, "'or else I shan't get to my tram-meeting.' Juryman collapses. Coroner. "'And did you wake him?' Mrs. Drabdump, breaking down, "'Oh, my lad, how can you ask?' "'Coroner. "'There, there, compose yourself. "'I mean, did you try to wake him?' "'Mrs. Drabdump. "'I've taken in and done for lodgers these seventeen years, my lad, "'and I've always gave satisfaction, "'and Mr. Mortlake, he wouldn't have recommended me otherwise, "'though I wish to heaven the poor gentleman had never—' "'Coroner. "'Yes, yes, of course.' Uh, "'You tried to rouse him?' But it was some time before Mrs. Drabdump was sufficiently calm to explain that, though she had overslept herself, and though it would have been all the same anyhow, she had come up to time. Bit by bit the tragic story was forced from her lips. A tragedy that even her telling could not make tawdry. She told with superfluous detail how— when Mr. Grodman broke in the door, she saw her unhappy gentleman lodger lying on his back in bed, 
stone dead, with a gaping red wound in his throat. How her stronger-minded companion calmed her a little by spreading a handkerchief over the distorted face. How they then looked vainly about, and under the bed for any instrument by which the deed could have been done, the veteran detective carefully making a rapid inventory of the contents of the room, and taking notes of the precise position and condition of the body before anything was disturbed by the arrival of gapers or bunglers, and how she had pointed out to him that both the windows were firmly bolted to keep out the cold night air, how, having noted this down with a puzzled, pitying shake of the head, he had opened the window to summon the police, and espied in the fog one Denzil Cantercot, whom he called and told to run to the nearest police station, and asked them to send on an inspector and a surgeon. How they both remained in the room till the police arrived, Grodman pondering deeply the while, and making notes every now and again, as fresh points occurred to him, and asking her questions about the poor, weak-headed young man. Pressed as to what she meant by calling the deceased weak-headed, she replied that some of her neighbours wrote him begging letters, though heaven knew they were better off than herself, who had to scrape her fingers to the bone for every penny she earned. Under further pressure from Mr. Talbot, who was watching the inquiry on behalf of Arthur Constant's family, Mrs. Drabdump admitted that the deceased had behaved like a human being. Nor was there anything externally eccentric or queer in his conduct. He was always cheerful and pleasant-spoken, though certainly soft, God rest his soul. No, he never shaved, but wore all the hair that heaven had given him. A juryman. She thought deceased was in the habit of locking his door when he went to bed. Of course she couldn't say for certain. Laughter. There was no need to bolt the door as well. The bolt slid upwards, and was at the top of the door. Uh, when she first let lodgings, her reasons for which she seemed anxious to publish, there had only been a bolt, but a suspicious lodger, she would not call him a gentleman, had complained that he could not fasten his door behind him, and so she had been put to the expense of having a lock made. The complaining lodger went off soon after, without paying his rent. Laughter. She had always known he would. Coroner. Was the deceased at all nervous? Witness. No, he was a, a very nice gentleman. A laugh. Coroner. I, I mean, did he seem afraid of being robbed? Witness. No, he was always going to demonstrations. Laughter. I told him to be careful. I told him I lost a purse with three and tuppence myself on Jubilee Day. Mrs. Drabdump resumed her seat weeping vaguely. Coroner. Gentlemen, we shall have an opportunity of viewing the room shortly. The story of the discovery of the body was retold, though more scientifically, by Mr. George Grodman, whose unexpected resurgence into the realm of his early exploits excited as keen a curiosity as the reappearance, for this occasion only, of a retired prima donna. His book, Criminals I Have Caught, passed from the 23rd to the 24th edition, merely on the strength of it. 
Mr. Grodman stated that the body was still warm when he found it. He thought that death was quite recent. The door he had had to burst was bolted as well as locked. He confirmed Mrs. Drabdump's statement about the windows. The chimney was very narrow. The cut looked as if it had been done by a razor. There was no instrument lying about the room. He had known the deceased about a month. He seemed a very earnest, simple-minded young fellow who spoke a great deal about the brotherhood of man. The hardened old man-hunter's voice was not free from a tremor as he spoke jerkily of the dead man's enthusiasms. He should have thought the deceased the last man in the world to commit suicide. Mr. Denzil Cantercot was next called. "'Ah, he was a poet,' laughter. "'He was, ah, on his way to Mr. Grobman's house to tell him he'd be unable to do some writing for him, because he was, ah, suffering from writer's cramp when Mr. Grodman called to him from the window of number 11 and asked him to run for the police. No, he did not run. He was an philosopher. Laughter. He returned with them to the door, but did not go up. He had no stomach for crude sensations. Laughter. The grey fog was sufficiently unbeautiful for him for one morning. Laughter. Inspector Howlett said, "'About 4.45 on the morning of Tuesday, 4th December, from information received, he went with Sergeant Runnymede and Mr. Robinson to 11 Glover Street Bow, and there found the dead body of a young man lying on his back with his throat cut. The door of the room had been smashed in, and the lock and the bolt evidently forced. The room was tidy. There were no marks of blood on the floor. A purse full of gold was on the dressing-table beside a big book. A hip bath with cold water stood beside the bed, over which was a hanging bookcase. There was a large wardrobe against the wall next to the door. The chimney was very narrow. There were two windows, one bolted. It was about eighteen feet to the pavement. There was no way of climbing up. No one could possibly got out of the room, and then bolted the doors and windows behind them. And he had searched all parts of the room in which any one might have been concealed. He had been unable to find any instrument in the room, in spite of an exhaustive search, there being not even a penknife in the pockets of the clothes of the deceased, which lay on a chair. The house and the backyard and the adjacent pavement also had been fruitlessly searched. Sergeant Runnymede made an identical statement, saving only that he had gone with Dr. Robinson and Inspector Howlett. Dr. Robinson, divisional surgeon, said, The deceased was lying on his back with his throat cut. The body was not yet curled. The abdominal region was quite warm. Rigor mortis had set in in the lower jaw, neck, and upper extremities. The muscles contracted when beaten. I inferred that life had been extinct some two or three hours, probably not longer. It might have been less. The bedclothes would keep the lower part warm for some time. 
the wound which was a deep one was five and one half inches from right to left across the throat to a point under the left ear the upper portion of the windpipe was severed and likewise the jugular vein the muscular coating of the carotid artery was divided there was a slight cut as if in continuation of the wound on the thumb of the left hand the hands were clasped underneath the head there was no blood on the right hand the wound could not have been self-inflicted a sharp instrument had to have been used such as a razor the cut might have been made by a left-handed person no doubt death was practically instantaneous i saw no signs of a struggle about the body or the room i noticed a purse on the dressing-table next to madame velasky's big book on theosophy uh, sergeant runnymede drew my attention to the fact that the door had evidently been locked and bolted from within a juryman i did not say the cuts uh, could not have been made by a right-handed person uh, i can offer no suggestion as to how the inflictor of the wound got in or out extremely improbable that the cut was self-inflicted uh, there was a little trace of the outside fog in the room Police Constable Williams said he was on duty in the early hours of the morning of the 4th inst. Glover Street lay within his beat. He saw or heard nothing suspicious. The fog was never very dense, though nasty to the throat. He had passed through Glover Street about half-past four. He had not seen Mr. Mortlake or anybody else leave the house. The court here adjourned the coroner and the jury repairing in a body to eleven glover street to view the house and the bedroom of the deceased and the evening posters announced the bow mystery thickens End of chapter two